Welcome to Apodcalypse Now, a journey into the heart of darkness. My name is Dave, and this is my brother Aaron, and we're here to give you our totally 100% unqualified views on all things pop culture. From movies to music to news, nothing is off limits for us to blindly comment on that's happening in the real world. In this week's episode, we're going to be covering Avenged Sevenfold's new album, Thanks, Matt. Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly's classic 2005 series, All-Star Superman, and the 11th annual Gathering of the Juggalos. So for the first topic this week, we're going to discuss a homework assignment that I gave Dave, which was to listen to Avenged Sevenfold's new album, which came out Tuesday, Nightmare. Avenged Sevenfold is a band that I got into back in 2004. I saw them at an old venue in downtown Portland. Oh, what was the name of the place? The Nocturnal. And they were formed in 99 out of Huntington Beach, California when they were teenagers. And they really got their first break when they were signed to Hopeless Records in the early 2000s. They released their first album, Sounding the Seventh Trumpet, and their second album, which is one of my favorites, Waking the Fallen on Hopeless, before making the jump to the big leagues when they released City of Evil. After that, they released a self-titled record a few years later, which I'm not a huge fan of, and now they're going on to Nightmare. I just recently got my hands on Nightmare. I was a huge fan of Waking the Fallen and City of Evil. I think that City of Evil is when the band peaked uh, musically. The the albums are different. City of Evil is more of like a straight ahead hard rock record, whereas Waking the Fallen is when they still had their metalcore roots going on. But I still like them both. Matt was still screaming in Waking the Fallen, whereas City of Evil has pretty much no screaming on. There's some background screams, but nothing, you know, too over the top. And uh, when they released the self-titled record after City of Evil, I was disappointed, to be honest with you. It seemed like what they had done is dumbed down their sound to reach a more mainstream audience and so when nightmare came out i was skeptical and honestly i was didn't wasn't even really aware of it i was a big avenge fan during state of evil but the next album was such a disappointment that i pretty much lost all interest in the band i don't like mainstream rock it's stupid and that's what it seemed like to me and i just figured that's how they're gonna be for the rest of their career nightmare it kind of has gone back to the roots there's a lot of good guitar playing on it which is one of the things they became known for and the songs aren't quite as dumbed down mainstream rock there's more five and a half to six to seven minute songs on it the big epic rock songs that they kind of became known for and one of the big things that happened leading up to nightmare was the passing of their drummer the rev came to light that what happened was it was a drug overdose he had like two different kinds of oxycodone in his system volume and alcohol and the thing about Avenged Sevenfold is there's two guys in that band they're almost virtuoso musicians one of them being the lead guitar player Sinister Gates the other being the drummer The Rev and so when he passed it was interesting to see how that would affect the songwriting to me it sounds like they were able to go forth with the album I know the drum parts already written so they brought in a studio drummer to finish them but the songs were definitely better than the last album and mainly I wanted to see what Dave's take was because this is a band I introduced Dave to a few years ago and as more of a casual fan of the band I was interested to see what he thought of it so what, yeah. what do you think Dave? Yeah, like uh, like Aaron had said, he introduced me to the band around the time Waking the Fallen came out, and I was I was pretty into it. I am more of a casual music guy than Aaron is, and you know, here's a here's a disclaimer. I am this is definitely where the 100% unqualified opinion comes in because I am a layman when it comes to music. I only know what I hear and what my natural response is. I dug Avenged Sevenfold. I dug their first two albums, and City of Evil had its moments for me too, where I was really into it. 
I like to work out. I had their music in my workout list. I especially liked Won't See You Tonight, part one and two. Their first couple albums struck me as like definitely like thrash and shred, like true metal. And it was kind of impressive because at the time they came out, I wasn't aware of a lot of really good metal. There's a lot of crappy pop metal and even some of the like the remnants of the corn limp biscuit thing were still out there. New metal. New metal, yeah. Let's let's tone down our guitars. But uh you know, Avenged, they were on my radar and I'm aware of them, but you know, after sounding the seventh trumpet and waking the fallen, I listened to some of uh, City of Evil and I enjoyed parts of it, but then I, they fell off my radar. And when Aaron gave me this as my homework assignment, I was a little bit intrigued and I uh, listened to the album. I have to say that my, my initial response was that there's a lot more shred on this album as far as the guitars go. I was really impressed with the guitar sound and the whole time I was listening to it, I'm like, yeah, I would listen to this while I'm working out. You know, this is definitely, you know, intense musically, but I was struck by the stupidity of the lyrics of M Shadow's lyrics. From the opening of the album when he goes, not me, yeah. It just was all downhill. And I just, I didn't get, I don't know what he's saying. I, I, I couldn't get at it. I mean, was he talking about his drummer? I don't know, but. He was. A, a big part of what happened with this album was that when the drummer passed away, they actually had the whole thing written, including the lyrics. And so after he passed away, he went back and he changed the lyrics to be more reflective of what he's going through, which obviously would make sense as an artist. But Yeah, but the, the album was already done. The album like, was, why didn't he save those lyrics for the next album? Because it was current, I think. I mean, when you go through it, I mean, the next album is going to be two years away. And to go back, I think, in an interview I just read, he said, I want to do it now while it's still fresh, because the further away you get from it, the more guarded you get and the less open you're going to be about talking about well, it. Yeah, but I would throw uh, out that Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd is an example of that where they sang about Sid Barrett on almost every album. I mean, The Wall was, I believe, about Sid Barrett and about the yeah. trappings of rock stardom. Dark Side of the Moon touched on Sid Barrett, you know? Yeah. And Sid was, the only album Sid was present on was um, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, their first album when they were still a hardcore psychedelic band and not yet the uh, progressive storytelling um, concept album band that yeah. they became. So. I think with Pink Floyd and Sid Barrett, there's a little bit of difference than with the situation in that with Sid Barrett, he was the guy that formed the band and he was the guy that laid the foundation for Pink Floyd and he went nuts and left the band. And, oh, yeah. he, and the he reflection back shit. on it was was that was them singing about the fact that there is basically something missing the whole time and the uniqueness of what had happened, the fact that he just basically left the band. Whereas with this guy, one thing Avenged Sevenfold's known for is they're kind of like a quote band of brothers. They always talk about how they they're each other's best friends. And so it's not only was it like losing a band member for them which is may have been more like what happened said barrett is like we lost the guy who started this band we continued it on to success because they didn't get successful well, pink floyd till after he left i do see what you're talking about because there are stories about sid barrett because he he lost his mind i think it was a, a due to lsd you know surprise surprise those guys are using lsd but uh there are stories that they'll tell roger waters will tell about you know sid barrett showing back up in the studio completely unannounced and unrecognized and i mean you know yeah. it's, i guess it's one thing to have the drummer die it's another thing to have a, a band member disappear and then and just have him pop back up and reopen those old wounds. And, and that's what M. Shadows was getting at when he said he rewrote the lyrics. Basically, he wanted to get what he's feeling right now off his chest. I mean, he could have gone back two years later, but his reasoning was, this is fresh, I want to talk about it now, and this is how I'm going to... It basically said he was going to heal through his music, which is something that all artists do, you know? It, it makes sense to Absol me. Absolutely, but I was dumbstruck by... It, I mean, it really does seem like that he dumbed down his lyrics, and I don't know if he'd written those previously, and maybe it was a grab for mainstream rock attention, and not all the lyrics, not all the lyrics, but something's just jumped out me on the at, on the album. I'm just like, you know, who is he writing this music for? Like, who is he trying to appeal to? No, I agree with you. I I don't think the lyrics are good either. I 
for me, it's just like I read the article to explain why. But when you listen to it, the lyrics just I feel like what happened was it was very spur of the moment. He was inspired. And so he just wrote what he was feeling. And sometimes, you know, not sitting down and thinking really about what you have going on with lyrically, it, it can be the worst thing. I mean, sometimes people need to sit down and really think about their lyrics. Some guys can do it inspirationally off the off the cuff. Maybe he can, maybe he can't. With this album, you know, there's it's it, it is a hit or miss album. Good instrumentally, I think it's weak vocally, like Dave was saying. You know what it reminded me of was a bit of a some kind of monster. This monster lives. They had moments. You mean Saint Anger? Whatever it's called. Yes, Saint Anger. Some kind of monster was the documentary. No, about well, them that's recording the it. documentary is amazing. If you if you want to watch a band falling apart, watch some kind of monster because. If you were pro James before that documentary, it's going to open your eyes up to James Hetfield being kind of a bitch. It kind of reminds me of Say It Anger where there was definitely like, you could see some classic Metallica and there's some great instrumentation, but the lyrics in Saint Anger, so, so bad. So bad. And this this album's not as bad lyrically as Saint Anger. Nah, Saint Anger was a uh, monument of music unto itself. But I, I kind of see what you're Not a good for. monument. It's a shitty monument. Yeah, I know. A testament to shitty songwriting the world has never seen before. Yeah, but every band has that album. It Well, I don't know if every band has an album as bad as St. Anger, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> All right, yeah. They may not have gone as far in the other direction as Metallica went, but most bands will have that album that you hold. Look, The Beatles, Let It Be, not oh, their best yeah. album. Yeah, bands know. release bad albums. I think, you know, sometimes you're just, as an artist, you get stagnant when you've been doing the same thing for so long. You know, inspiration isn't guaranteed. And well, I, mean, I look, really you're, felt you're that way about last You're successful. Album. You've been doing it for 20 years. You have money. I'm talking about Metallica mostly or any other yeah. really established band. You know, how are you going to stay hungry? How are you going to stay inspired? I, that's what I attribute Load to. I don't attribute Load to grunge. I attribute it to a band that had reached the pinnacle of success. Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, Beatles level success. And it's like, where do you go from here? How far, how much further do we want to take this metal thing that we've been doing for 15 or 20 years already? No, totally. I mean, I think that happens to bands. I mean, Load, I is a, Load, Load has so many elements of country in it. You know, yeah. and there's a long history in rock of uh, the fusion of rock and country. Well, that doesn't. Sp- James is a big country fan too. If you know anything about Metallica, oh, he's, I mean, he's that's where that, that came from. So, with this album, with Avenged, it's interesting to see. What I see in this album is them going back to what they were doing on City of Evil instrumentally. You can hear a lot of the progressive virtuoso stuff going on. It's not quite as heavy or, in my opinion, quite as well done as City of Evil. But it's almost like they realized what they had done on their self-titled record, which I thought was their worst album. It's like they learned from it and decided, hey, you know, this isn't our band. We're going to at least try to go back and, and do what we do well. And something that Dave has mentioned before about Avenge is they wear their influences on Slave. You can hear you can hear the Guns N' Roses. You can hear the Iron Maiden. You can hear the oh, yeah. old school thrash. All that stuff. I think especially on this album, I feel like while I really like the guitar parts, it's almost like they're still shrink-wrapped and they're fresh out of the box. It sounded very hair metal to me, some of them. I really, one thing about Avenge that is one of the big points for me that I like is their lead guitar part player i really like his playing he's in a, he's a very creative lead guitar player he's not he thinks that's at the box and i think that comes to do with his schooling i mean he's gone to you know git which is a guitar institute down in southern california he went there to learn jazz and his dad was a guitar player that's why he was a guitar player and i, I think he's a unique player in a c because a good big guitar playing has come back over the last decade like it was in the 80s and when that happens even really technical guitar playing it gets old. You have to be a unique and technical guitar player. And I think he does have that. Absolutely. And I, when I say like it's still got the shrink wrap and the sheen on it from 80s hair metal, in this situation, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. I still really enjoyed it. And you can hear those Guns N' Roses, kind of Motley Crue, but they're not wearing the Motley Crue on their sleeves like they did in uh, City of Evil. I actually, when I was listening to it, I wrote down Warrant. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing. 
It's just it seems like he's going for a different sound, and you can tell with the progression. And another, like, you mentioned the word regression, and I know it's not always a bad thing, and it's like they're going back to what worked, but I do think there are elements with this band where the regression is a negative thing. I think that some of their shorter songs on the album just aren't up to snuff. No, I, totally. I think it's it's funny because I, I do think they kind of regressed to basically back to two albums ago. But it's funny, they regressed, but at the same time, they're not quite as as good, in my opinion, as they were two albums ago. So it's like they regressed, but it's still like, they're, it's almost like if you look at things like on a financial level, they're still in the red. <laughs> to get back up into the green musically, they, they have to kind of progress from where they're at now to get back to where they were doing something unique and progressive, yeah, but, which is what I felt they did in City Well, Evil. I really think right now the band's trying to strike this balance, though, between making money and a hardcore metal cred. Yeah, making, like, good progressive music. Exactly. I mean, I think they did appeal to the masses, and generally they don't sound like this band, and they don't write music quite like this band, but they kind of reminded me of Nickelback, where it's like, how do we appeal to the widest possible audience? It's not It's not as pandering, it's not as obvious, but I think they're kind of stuck in that gray zone where it's like, if they go one way or the other, they're going to lose something that they want. They're either going to lose their, fan, their hardcore fans that got them where they're at, or they're not going to make as much money. No, totally. I think that what happened was on their last album, they tried to do that. They tried to write that mainstream rock record or they knew the songs that were going to be singles were kind of dumbed down and kind of simple compared to some of their other stuff. They were kind of blatant singles. Yeah, and I, and you know, who knows? Maybe they got to that level. I mean, they're still a band that's touring. They're headlining huge shows, and they're still a really, really big, popular, important band in mainstream rock but it just seems like on this album there aren't i mean like the first single nightmare it's even that one song is it's silly it's kind of silly oh it's a silly song it's not a song i like but in terms of like a mainstream rock song it's still a more risky song it's not as typical as your typical like nickelback song no that's something i do like see at least they're trying to do absolutely not and that's kind of a weak comparison to draw but it's a band that's trying to build legacy and trying to build a career and you say you know they are headlining these giant festivals and they're headlining these huge shows but metallica got there after seven albums Eh, five or six albums, I'm not sure. Metallica, the cool thing about Metallica is they built on these classic albums, well, and they built up to the Black Album, which is even unto itself. I love the Black I Album. I love the Black Album, too. It's a great pop metal album. Yeah. But Metallica will always be able to go back to the well with Kill 'Em All, Ride the Lightning, yeah, Master of Puppets. albums. You know? I mean, they, they their back catalog is so strong that no matter what, people will always come out to see them play those songs. Avenged Sevenfold, even though Waking the Fallen and... Um, City of Evil. Not City of Evil. Waking the Fallen. Sounding the Seven Trumpets. Uh, Sounding the Seven Trumpets and uh, City of Evil are all good albums. They're not in the same league as those early Metallica albums. Yeah, they kind of they kind of jump on City of Evil into the mainstream. And the thing about me is, like, Sounding the Seven Trumpets, it's, it's a funny album to me because you can hear as a band, that's where they're learning how to write songs. But it's the same thing as with Kill 'Em All. I think Kill 'Em All as a whole record is better than Sounding the Seventh Trumpet. Oh, absolutely! It's a great debut album, but Metallica have been playing those songs in the Bay Area for years. They've been developing those songs. Exactly, and I just think Sounding like they they learn from their song. They even said that the set the songwriting is inconsistent on Sounding Sounds Trumpets because they're basically teenagers who have been given a record deal. And they're like, okay, here's the songs we have, and then you can hear how they refine that sound in Waking the Fall and just a few years later, and it's a much much better album. And City of Evil, like I said, is where to me they peak. Well, yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is that to get where they want to go, where I think they want to go, 100% unfounded opinion, that's total conjecture. They need that strong back catalog, and they're not developing it now. No, I, I gotcha, and that, and that's the funny thing to see where their career arc is going to go. Is They've gotten to that point where there's the mainstream rock band, the Metallica, kind of became with Load. 
but they, like you said, they don't have that back catalog. So how long are they going to be able to sustain the level of success? Well, just mentioning Load, I'll put Load up against Nightmare any day of the week because you know a lot of hardcore Metallica fans don't like Load. I like Load. I like Load too. I, I think just, it's I got think... A, gr- a bunch of great singles. No, I agree. I think the funny thing about Load is that if any other band had released Load, it would have been a huge success and be like, oh, what a band. The problem is it was Metallica. I- exactly. Yeah, that you'd come to expect one thing from Metallica, and they gave you something else, which. Should we have really been surprised? I don't think so, because Metallica's always been kind of a progressive band. Yeah. And, you know, just to talk about Load for a sec, you know, people got caught up in Metallica cutting their hair. You have to realize it had been five years since they released the Black Album. People change, you know, and the musical landscape had changed dramatically. James had been burnt, which forced him to cut his hair into a mullet for a period of time, so I think it was a good thing that James furthered that hairdo and got rid of the mullet to just a regular short style. Well, I think that he claims he was burnt. I would like to see some footage of him being burnt. I think he was just rocking the bolt because he's kind of a redneck. <laughs> yeah, to wrap up the segment, Dave, if you were to give Nightmare a grade, I'd say in the context of compared to the rest of Avengers Sevenfold's catalog, what would be the grade? Uh, you'd I would give it? give it a C+. It's definitely listenable, if nothing else, than for the guitar parts, which were really interesting. I'm a casual fan. Like I said, I listen to him when I work out because it's great workout music. It's it's a C+, and it's not a terrible album at all. It's just I think they've got better albums in them. I agree, and I probably would give it about a C+, too. For me, it's their fourth best album. It's better than the last self-titled album, but it's not as good as their first three um i'm glad to see them going back in the direction that they have been in the past musically i think that i don't think m shadows is a bad lyricist or a bad vocalist or any of that you know there's some things i really like on their old albums i just hopefully at some point they will get back to where you know the vocals are more consistent like they were in their first few albums i think they're in a very interesting place because they could go in either direction and the next two or three years for Avenged will be really interesting yeah it'll definitely be interesting to see where they go in the future so right now we're going to jump into Aaron's homework assignment, which was All-Star Superman, the 2005 12-issue limited series written by Grant Morrison and illustrated by Frank Quietly. This is a comic book. It's published by DC, obviously, because Superman is, you know, a DC comic character. And basically what it is, it's a continuity-free Superman story, which means that he's not bogged down by the previous 80 years of Superman history. It uh, features Superman. He's already Superman. He's not Superboy. He's not learning to become Superman. He's been Superman for a while, and it concerns him dying. He's slowly dying of solar exposure and how he approaches this scenario and how he deals with his enemies. And so I gave this assignment to Aaron because this is the best Superman story I have ever read. And I have by no means read all the Superman stories, but from top to bottom, from issue one through issue 12, this is the most entertaining and accessible Superman story I've ever read. And I was wondering what Aaron, as a layman in the comic book medium, thought about it. Like I said last week, I don't know nearly as much about comic books as Dave does. I know more than your average person. I grew up in a household where there were comic books laying all over the place all the time and oftentimes I'd just pick one up and read it while I was eating breakfast or lunch or whatever. Superman, to me, is not the most interesting comic book character. The problem for me with Superman is that he's Superman and it's hard to figure out a way to make a creative Superman story because essentially Superman can't be beat but one way. So when Dave gave me this uh, homework assignment, I was like, eh, okay, Superman. I'm not the biggest Superman guy. The storyline is creative in the sense that they uh, make Superman his own worst enemy by putting himself in a position. He's tricked by Lex Luthor. I'll let Dave go into the actual storyline here in a bit to basically put himself in a position where he's dying. 
and there's nothing he can do about it throughout the whole story. You don't know what's actually going to happen to him. It's a 12-issue series. And the whole story arc is about Superman trying to take care of as much stuff as possible that he can while he's still alive to get as much good out of what he has left in himself. And the ironic thing is that what's killing him also makes him stronger. So he's a stronger Superman than he used to seem. I enjoyed the story. I thought the story arc was good. They have all the classic Superman characters. They got Lois, they got Lana, they got Jimmy, and they got the bumbling Clark Kent, which is always, you know, humorous and funny to see. Oh yeah, Mon Pa Kent, Crypto the Superdog. Yeah, I like the fact that they had Crypto, and I thought that was kind of funny. It was, it was great, yeah. I like the story, though. It's an interesting story, you know. It's a good twist on Lex Luthor, you know. They did well with him, but he's not the only thing he's fighting in it, which is good. You have to have other things to keep it interesting. Uh, Lex Luthor by himself, like we mentioned last week about the movie, that gets a little, a little tedious, but it was a good version of Lex Luthor. He's smart, and which is what Lex Luthor uses. He's smart Superman's well, he, powers. One thing I love about their characterization of Lex Luthor is that he's, he's narcissistic. That's why he wants to kill Superman because there should be nothing on Earth greater than Lex Luthor. And then there's this this thing, this entity, because you know Superman is distinctly not a human being that is greater than Lex Luthor, and it's effortless for Superman because he was born this way. But I'll, you know, I'll go into depth about the story a little bit more. It basically concerns uh, there's a mission to the Sun, and something goes wrong, and it's Lex Luthor's doing. He implanted a living bomb in one of the astronauts that was going to the sun, and Superman has to fly to the sun to save this mission, to save the people going there. And by doing so, he exposes himself to too much solar radiation, and the premise is that Superman is a living solar battery. And so by Lex Luthor luring Superman to save these astronauts, he's in effect poisoned him with solar energy. So Superman is dying the slow death, but... It, you know, like I said, it's a slow death. He's dying over the course of months, and there's nothing he can do about it. There's no science, there's no Kryptonian science available to him to save himself. And he's, what Aaron said is that, you know, how do you write an entertaining Superman story? Because Superman is the unbeatable, he, he's the ubermensch, you know? He's unbeatable, he's the ultimate superhero. He's the first and ultimate superhero. So, all of a sudden, Superman now has to face mortality. And he has to realize, like, I've been doing these things for humanity. Are they going to be okay without me? And that, that's what the story turns on that's the crux of the story that what happens in a world without superman and i think it goes a long way towards humanizing superman but the key to this story is that you're not bogged down by the regular story continuity it is outside of the regular dc universe in a universe contained by itself so you're not dealing with 20 or 30 years of post-crisis superman stories that you have to make sure you adhere to and you're especially not dealing with the almost 80 years of publication history that both the post-crisis and pre-crisis Superman stories that DC has published. Uh, moving on from that, the influences of the story. Grant Morrison is a writer that a lot of people... He's a very controversial writer in uh, comic books. He's been working for about 25 years. He's written just about every character. He's mostly worked for DC, but he's done some stuff for Marvel. He just killed off Batman and brought him back over the course of the last two years. Um, he wrote Final Crisis, which a lot of people were up in arms about. Um, they weren't sure. It just felt that's another story we can go into. But he, in this story, All-Star Superman, he has gone back to the Silver Age stories, a little bit simpler stories, but given them a modern sensibility. And I think that adds to the fun and the ease of read for the story and being able to enjoy it. Because every issue, it's a self-contained issue. You can read each issue on its own and they stand alone, but each issue also pushes forward the story further of Superman dying. Yeah, one thing I like is the way they reference the uh, entirety of the DC universe. It's always neat to see uh, characters brought in from the outside, even though if it's just like loose references, like he references Batman a couple times. But the uh, thing that's great about that is that he's, you know, Batman's this dark character. And Superman's like, oh, Batman's great. He's he's so he's happy, you know. So is Robin. Is basically what he says. No, totally. 
end, there's a part where he kind of looks back. He's like, yeah, I mean, Batman have had some great adventures when he's, you know, reflecting back on his life and some of the things he's done. There's a part where he's stuck on, because uh, basically there's an underworld that is... Uh, the exists, Bizarro world. Yeah, that exists. It's almost like another dimension to our universe. And in the Bizarro world, there's like the Justice League Bizarro equivalent of a handful of these characters. And it's the Green Lantern, the Flash, and what's the third? There's three of the characters in the oh, Justice League. Oh, it's Green Lantern, Flash, I believe maybe a Wonder Woman. I think it Bizarro. might be a Wonder Woman. I think it's Bizarro. What you got to understand about the Bizarro world is that it's the exact opposite of our world. Yeah. And so even though Bizarro Superman thinks he's a good guy and he does things that he perceives to be good, he is actually doing more harm than good. No, exactly. But it's not like they're bad guys. Yeah, they, they just don't do the opposite. Bad, yeah. It's like in their blood. Like or... Yeah, exactly. Like in Bizarro world, the Flash is really slow. You know, and Wonder Woman does appear, and I remember she does appear, but she's made out of clay. Yeah. Which means she's probably a human that became clay, instead of how Wonder Wo- the original Wonder Woman origin was that she was made from clay by her mother. Okay. And that, that's just, things like that is like a casual fan comic book, so I can see those references to the other characters you're familiar with. I like the, uh, there's a bit in the storyline where there's two other superheroes that get brought in. One's Samson, what's the name of the Samson other one? Samson and Hercules. And Hercules, basically. And they, uh... They, they're all those two and Superman are fighting for Lois Lane's affection well because he'd given Lois the super serum so she was super Lois for 24 hours yeah and these other superheroes are super attracted to a superwoman who by the way might be the hottest version of Lois Lane yet Lois Lane you ever see in the comic book yeah Frank quietly you can say what you want about his artwork his faces are kind of bizarre this is the sexiest Lois Lane ever and it's weird saying that because she's just drawn on paper but smoking hot it's yeah, it's, it's just the truth if you compare it to past depictions of Lois Lane I like that arc and it, it's funny because basically Superman the whole story is like okay whatever guys you know whatever these two guys are trying to do all these things to impress her at one point they bring this giant supernatural pharaoh creature into our reality and Superman's the one that has to basically answer riddle to get rid of him because the other two guys they can't do anything about it and it comes down to an arm wrestling match where basically where Superman breaks both their arms yeah it breaks their arms because it's a joke because they're not nearly as strong but once again this kind of harkens back to those simpler silver age stories of like oh it's Superman versus Hercules or it's Superman versus Samson and I think I think Hercules has like a time car that he drives through time on. Yeah. And it's you know, it is those simple fun flourishes that make it a very easy read, but it's a read you can revisit. And I think one thing that Warner Brothers in making their new Superman movie could learn from this story is that you can make an entertaining Superman story without being bogged down by the history of the character. You know, they get it right. Everybody knows who Superman is. He's like Mickey Mouse. Everybody knows Superman's history. So let's just forget about that. I mean, the, the first the first page in the first issue is four panels explaining everything that happened to Superman before he has to fly to the sun to take care of um, the astronauts they are trying to scoop up a portion of the sun. You know, in four panels, they give you all the information that you need to know that this is Superman, and then they're on, and they moved on from there, and it's great. Because you don't need to. There's You don't need to tell the origin story of Superman. Like, a lot of first comic book movies is always, like, the origin story, and it's always like you're waiting for the sequel, because the sequel is when, you know, the origin's out of the way, you can get going with the on, you know, an actual plot and story into itself. Uh, yeah, you don't need to deal with Superman. You can pretty much just come into a Superman movie with the idea that we can just tell a Superman story yeah. here. I mean, yeah, you hear the name Superman, you know, obviously, all of a sudden, he wears a blue and red costume, he can fly, he's nearly indestructible, and that he came from another planet. You know these things. There's nobody out there that shouldn't know these things because it's just something you're born with. It's been ingrained <laughs> in our pop culture consciousness. You shouldn't know the history If you don't of know the history of Superman, you're an idiot! <laughs> But, I mean, this is kind of why I assigned this homework assignment to Aaron, because this is a very accessible, very well done Superman story that 
you know, I don't think you you would ever see this done as a theatrically released movie, but the elements from the story that they got right should definitely be applied to the next Superman film. No, I agree. And one of the things that uh, we kind of harped on before about Superman and the Superman movies is that the only person they ever pit him against is Lex Luthor. Where did you just this... call him Lex Luthor? Lex <laughs> Lex Luthor, because he's always a Lex loser Luzer. when he fights Superman. But Lex Luthor and. The cool thing about the story is he is still the main villain, but he the, only shows up in two or three issues. Yeah, he's not the he's not the guy who is the out and out antagonist. He uses there's other people that come in and out of the story of the Superman fights and the way they use Lex Luthor and the storyline behind Lex Luthor using his brain power to get the better of Superman. It's it's actually interesting. Well, and, that's that's the one way that Lex Luthor and Batman, for that matter, compete with Superman is that you know their plan is always to outthink Superman. Yeah, well, it's the whole Boy Scout aspect of Superman. Superman, if anything, he is predictable yeah and that's the one he's thing always going to do, do the right thing or what he perceives to be the right thing yeah and that's that's one thing it's like in uh the dark knight returns that's how batman beats him in that oh know? yeah but in that in dark knight returns though frank miller who wrote that and that book is 25 years old now you know he portrays superman the, that that boy scout aspect of his character has been co-opted by the government he's being used by the government because he will always do what the government says because he perceives the government to be right yeah the ultimate the ultimate right yeah. entity and they're really just using him and it, but that's another interesting characterization of the relationship between batman and superman where you know even at the end of dark knight returns when batman is dying and superman's holding him and he says to nobody in particular don't you touch him even though they fought and even though they've been antagonistic for the entire issue you can still show that there's a history there and that there was some kind of feelings of respect yeah well they're the the interesting thing about the dichotomy between the relationship of Batman and Superman is they're both good guys, they're both well-intentioned, but other than that, they're completely totally different characters, and it's it's really interesting to see that those were the two characters that were born out of the golden age of the DC Universe, they're two main characters, because they're two totally different spins on the hero. And Well, I mean, you know, they got Superman, who's the classic immigrant tale, which is the tale of all Americans, you know, that are all current Americans, Native Americans excluded, because they were here first, but... You know, he is, it's the classic immigrant tale of, you know, he comes from Krypton, his land is, his home planet has been destroyed, and now he's basically the stranger in the strange land, and he's trying to adapt to our world. Batman is the tragic hero, you know, boy, his parents were killed when he was a young boy, so basically now he's decided to wipe out crime as an adult, you know, and you can, and then you can go further from there, and you can explore them both, and I mean, you know, any character that's been published, any characters that have been published for 80 years, you'll be able to peel back layer upon layer, but basically project anything that you want onto these characters. I mean, people compare Superman to Christ, you know, and even Batman too, because they've both been brought back from dead in the comics. You know, Batman, well, he, he wasn't killed by Bane, but he had his back broken by Bane, and then recently he was supposedly killed, but that didn't really, wasn't really exactly what happened. Well, he had been taking lessons from the Hulkster, and he powered back up and made his big comeback. Are you telling me that Bruce Wayne hulked up? I'm saying Bruce Wayne dropped a big leg on death. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, but getting back to Superman, you know, this, I, I see where Aaron's coming from with, it's like, how do you write an entertaining Superman story when he's the unstoppable character, the ultimate good guy? And I don't buy that. I think that's lack of creativity and laziness. No, that's exactly, but the, the problem, yeah, I agree with you on that. It is like, cause you can obviously write this, this was an interesting Superman story. The problem, especially with movies, I guess, is my problem is that they haven't been able to do that. And no. there's a problem there. I mean, you can make a great Superman movie. Oh, absolutely. But you got to explore the character. I mean, the reason Superman's interesting is because he's that Boy Scout. Because he's got these morals that he will not let slide. So yeah, he's, he's the ideal. He is the ideal. And, you know, ideals are often unattainable. But they're still interesting. There's a re reason we keep coming back 
revisiting these ideals. For me personally, Superman, his humanity is where he's vulnerable. So if you want to write an interesting Superman movie, let's put Lois Lane in some real jeopardy. Let's kill Lois Lane. Let's. How would Superman deal when he's mourning for his wife or his girlfriend or the woman he loves? No, exactly. I mean, that's kind of what they've been doing with the uh, the Batman movies and the restarted them. They, they, there's a real human aspect to them. They're not like this stupid, cartoony, comic booky thing where they stay away from slightly taboo yeah. or controversial subjects. I mean, they, they kill people in those movies. They're dark. They explore the dark side of human nature, and that's what makes those movies well, interesting. Well, there's a reason Batman's called the Dark Knight. Yeah. There's a reason we don't need nipples on the Batsuit. But there's one thing that's kind of scary about the Dark Knight Returns and these dark Batman movies is that a couple months ago, actually a couple years ago, Warner Brothers, right after Dark Knight was released... Warner Brothers wanted a darker Superman movie. And it's like, no, no, Batman is the Dark Knight. Batman is that dark character, the same way the Punisher is a dark character, even though the Punisher has got a terrible history of films. <laughs> Superman is not that dark character. Superman needs to be in the light. Superman needs to be dealing with these large issues of humanity. I, I agree with that, but that doesn't mean there can't be, the the point I'm trying to make is there can be some dark context. Oh, absolutely. Story. I think that's one of the things that they could add to it to interest people in general. People like dark storylines. I mean, I think it shows. I think anything what you do is you take Superman, you put him in some dark situations and have him make some decisions. I think so too, but the darkness permeates Christopher Nolan's Batman films, you can't put Superman in that kind of darkness because all of a sudden the things that that ideal that makes a character great is gone. No, well, and all I of a think... sudden Superman is just a a poor knockoff of Batman that can fly around and wears yeah. blue and red. No, I, I think it's more just like taking the the Superman character and putting it in you putting know, him in real dark, jeopardy. Yeah, yeah, some real human situations where he has to make some real decisions. Well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, any of the Superman movie, even going back to Richard Donner's first Superman film, the the best Superman film, the greatest Superman film that holds up so well after 30 years. At no point during any of those films did I really feel like Superman was in any jeopardy or anything was really on the line, except except when Superman and Richard Pryor. We're battling the computer because I was concerned that Richard Pryor was just going to crack jokes on Superman. <laughs> or was Superman fought himself? But let's be honest, Superman's cinematic history, kind of hit or miss too. There's one good one. Well, no, Superman 2 is pretty good. When he fights Zod. Is that the one with all the uh, aliens? before Zod. Yeah, Zod's all right. No, it's, it's good. You should go back and watch it. I give Superman and Superman 2 big thumbs up. Superman Returns, meh, kind of in the middle. Superman 3 and 4, terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, but so what would you give All-Star Superman to bring it back to our original subject? Would you recommend this for somebody? Would you give it, what kind of grade would you give it? Yeah, I would definitely recommend, especially people who are skeptical about the Superman character. It's a good way to be like, here, check this out. You know, at the least you'll see how this can be interesting. Um, if I was going to grade it, I would give it, you know, a solid... B, B minus. I think, you know, in terms of the story, I think there's parts where it's just like, it gets, even though it's really short, quick read, I read 12 issues in like 24 hours and it didn't take me very long at all. There's there's some parts where it gets a little slow, but overall it's a good story and it flows well and, and it keeps you interested enough to want to finish it. For non-comic book fans, I would definitely give it a B because it is a good solid read and it keeps you entertained. I do see where Aaron's coming from, especially if you're not a comic book guy because some of the references to the Silver Age stories and Superman like past characters definitely get kind of old and you'd be like, I don't care because this is obscure. For comic book guy, it's a, it's an A minus or B plus. It's, I love this series. I go back and read it. I pick up my back issues and I don't do that very often. It's the characterization of Superman I think is the perfect balance because he's trying to be that boy scout. I love their version of Clark Kent because he's a total doof. Yeah, Frank quietly even draws him differently to make him look a little little chubby. A little yeah, that's, that was funny. I kept thinking like, 
he does look chubbier when he's Clark Kent, but how come he doesn't look chubby as Superman? It was, exactly. It's, it's, it's kind of funny because they actually point that out in the story. Oh, it, it, it's so great, yeah. The characterization Lex Luthor, I think, is spot on. It's one of the best Lex Luthors I've ever read because they're treating Lex Luthor like this puppet master. Um, there's a scene when Clark Kent is interviewing Lex Luthor in jail when, you know, it's it, it, it works on so many levels. One thing I want to point out about the Lex Luthor character that's really cool about the story is that there's this, the, the, the overriding storyline about Lex Luthor is he keeps saying if Superman wasn't here, I could then go on to do things to make the world better. But Clark Kent's like, well, why don't you just do that anyways? And during that interview, he's like, why are you doing this? And basically it comes like that he's obsessed with Superman. That's what he wants. And that uh, that he keeps using these things kind of as an excuse, like I'm not really a bad guy because in the story, he goes on trial like three times. Lex Luthor keeps breaking the law and doing these evil things. But his excuse is always like, I'm doing it and I'd be doing good things if it wasn't for Superman. Yeah. But his obsession with Superman just proves that he is, you know, innately evil and that in all he has his own best interests in mind he wants to prove to himself that he is the superior being on the planet if he can defeat the well it goes back to Lex Luthor and the story being and overall being completely narcissistic the great thing about this Lex Luthor though is that he doesn't see himself as a villain yeah. He's, if, if we were writing the story from Lex Luthor's perspective, he'd be the hero. I like the characterization of his niece. That's kind of fun to give yeah. Lex Luthor a sidekick that's not necessarily a romantic interest or a bumbling doofus. You know, once again, B for non-comic book fans, A- minus for comic book fans. I can't recommend this highly enough. It's one of my favorite series to come out in the last five years. So moving on to the last segment of this episode, we're going to discuss The Gathering of the Juggalos, which is happening in Illinois in early August. It's actually the 11th annual edition of The Gathering of the Juggalos, hosted by the Insane Clown Posse. I want to call this Woodstock for Retards. (laughs) Yes, swimming in a sea of retarded sexuality. It was merely a two-word review, just a shit sandwich. Dave and I both watched the promotional video for the uh, Gathering of the Juggalos, and basically they just talk about the event. It goes over about four days, and they have a, a slew of huge hip-hop and rock stars. And comedians. They were all huge in 1994. From Coolio to Warren G to Tone Loke, they've got it all. Slick Rick's going to be there. Yeah, it's funny because it's kind of like a microcosm of all the worst parts of American culture wrapped into a 17-minute promotional video. And it's hosted by these two idiot hip-hop... I believe one of them is called Awesome Dre. Awesome Dre and and, and Stupid Easy and one of the... And then I think uh, Shaggy Two Dope's wife is the annoying witch in the passenger seat. (laughs) Annoying witch. Yeah, you can tell it was scripted, which makes it even worse because they're terrible actors and they can actually deliver things believably. It's funny because promotional video shows footage from the past gathering of the Juggalos. If you could ever imagine a gathering of 10,000 of the biggest idiots you've ever can seen Can we just in call this Tardstock from now on? Tardstock <laughs> The 11th annual gathering of the Tards. Tardstock. You know, the Insane Clown Posse I have very mixed feelings for. I can't decide if I just hate them or if I just want to shit all over them because they bring nothing to the table. They're fat, goofy white guys covered in clown makeup, and I don't get the appeal of this band at all. The only thing you can really seriously respect about them is the fact that they are successful, and they've probably made a decent amount of money doing the Insane Clown Posse. Well, I've looked at the ticket prices for this, and just to park your car will cost inside the grounds, not outside the grounds, or I mean, I couldn't believe Juggalos would break into each other's cars and steal shit, but... (laughs) To park your cars inside the campground is anywhere from $75 to $350. 
That must be a really good parking spot. I, I Somehow I doubt that any of the Juggalos are going to be able to come up with 350 bucks, but, you know, maybe some of them are real ballers. Well, I think what, because it's been happening every year for the last 11 years, you start saving up about five years in advance, you can get $350 for parking. <laughs> First thing that comes to mind is just a bunch of Juggalos running around town, like, collecting empty bottles and stuff off the road. With their clown makeup on. With their ICP shirts. Yeah, their tickets are 150 bucks for all four days. And they advertise in this promotional video that there are seminars available. I know. <laughs> like as if the the juggalo culture has something to teach fellow juggalos. Do you think it's like a portfolio seminar? Like this is what you need to do to get a job? <laughs> the festival features, it's obviously for the most part a musical festival. Uh, ICP headlines the last night on Sunday, night before one of the other big artists on their record label, Twisted, is headlining. A couple well, of really, it's like a cultural festival, but just that the culture that it's representing is intellectually bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, like, Vanilla Ice is going to be there. I mean, we could probably go back and forth. The promotional video lists every, practically every single person. Method Man and Red Man are there. A lot of rappers that you'd recognize, you know, at no, least there, their names. No, there aren't a lot of rappers you'd recognize. There's Method Man and Red Man and the ICP are the only rappers I recognize. Oh, there's Vanilla Ice. All right, there's Vanilla Warren Ice. G, there's Julio. Lil' Kim's going to be there. There's not these, that any of them are this relevant. Is, this is like, these rappers that you just mentioned are like foam off the sea of washed up rappers like no, these guys exactly. don't even have a career anymore like vanilla ice has been through how many incarnations of ice ice baby tone mm. loke's gonna be there the dude was like a one-hit wonder yeah it's well that's what's funny about it i mean then not to mention the wrestling aspect of it, professional wrestling aspect of it which is just as bad they're gonna be swimming in a sea of washed up wrestlers as well well here, here's a little disclaimer uh aaron and i both grew up giant professional wrestling fans and to some extent we still have that love in our heart and in the near future we're gonna do a pro wrestling roundtable with some of our like-minded wrestling fanatics out there <laughs> but yeah there's an idea of a uh, flashlight wrestling that goes on it starts at 4 a.m and they're gonna have the wrestlers wrestling under flashlight my uh, my thoughts on this is that these wrestlers are so terrible that the lack of light is actually going to cover up for the lack of action in yeah the ring. <laughs> It's, it's funny because they're like, and there's going to be legends of wrestling. And they didn't even say the guys. They just started flashing pictures of guys like Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, Rugged, Ronnie, Garvin. Who else was in the, the Flashlight Wrestling match? Jim Dundee. Jim Dundee. Which, I mean, these names kind of mean something to us. Kind of. I mean, I remember watching Hacksaw when we were younger. I remember watching Rugged, Ronnie, Garvin. These aren't necessarily legends I want to watch wrestle, you know, especially not now, 20 years on. And I mean, poor Terry Funk is one of the featured wrestlers. Now, I don't know if he's actually wrestling or just making an appearance, but the guy's like 65 years old. I don't want to see him. He doesn't need to be up that late. He's an old man. No, and the funny part is that with the flashlight match, what they're doing is they're relying on the people who are coming to the event to bring their flashlights. And so anyone with a flashlight can put it on the ring and that's how they're going to light it. So hopefully the little juggalos out there remember to bring their batteries and their flashlights so well hacksaw Jim Duggan doesn't hurt himself getting in and out of the ring. One word describes this event. Clusterfuck 2010. <laughs> well, you know what? On some level, obviously it works because it's number eleven. Uh, you know, people are definitely into it, and I mean there's the after and it raises the question though with parking passes within the compound so your car can be safe going from 75 to 350 bucks depending on where you park and how you know how big a baller you are and then tickets pretty much in the area of 150 bucks for a four-day pass do you think the icp are just treating their fans as a atm or do you think they actually kind of care about their fans that are putting this on for their fans I think it's a little bit of both. I think that they. I mean, developed... there are a lot of events. Like, there's a midway. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, at the show. I, there's definitely. You know, it's something that I've absolutely 
no legitimate interest in except for this sort of thing where you're kind of making fun of it. It's a curiosity. But yeah, there, there's a legitimate subculture that they've created and they've been successful in creating it. And I do think that, you know, any big artist has big shows to make money, you know? But it's also, I think, as much about getting, you know, having that place once a year where everyone that's involved in that subculture can kind of come together and enjoy being around each other and as much as it would be for me extremely interesting to go and be there and simply people watch not because it would be I obviously wouldn't be there to actually be into it because that's silly but it'd be interesting to watch the goings on I've seen your ICP t-shirt I I think the ICP I think their fans probably generally I'm going to make a gross generalization right here but they probably come from broken homes they have probably single parent households probably substance abuse in their parents background or their background they probably feel alone and isolated and you know that one thing that keeps popping up in the 17 minute commercial for this Tard Fest 2010 is family and love I think that's one thing that a lot of fans of ICP feel like they're members of a community. And I do think that ICP, the band themselves, are kind of invested in their fans. And I think they generally do actually care somewhat about their fans, but I don't think they're above exploiting their fans and making buttloads of cash off of them. No, but then again, you know, what real huge popular artist doesn't do that? That's true, but... It just is what it is. That's true, but they're going to milk their fans for hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a four-day festival, whereas the band, you know, that reference Metallica again since we're just talking about them you know you may pay 200 bucks for a show but you're gonna get three and a half hours so they're not gonna get you for anything beyond that they're not I mean but then again if Metallica put on Metallifest you're talking about a grand to get in but no Metallica does play shows though where it's the same thing it's it's a $200 ticket it's $200 for parking they're getting paid an ass load of money their, their merchandise is super expensive I mean it just comes with the territory I really don't think it's that different from any sort of I, it's funny because I'm gonna say legitimate musical artist because really insane Colin Posse in our eyes at least are not that but you know the Eagles what do you think I mean the Eagles charge oh. a buttload of money yeah that, you know that's a good point I think the only difference between fans of the Eagles and fans of the ICP is about 35 years and about $60,000 a year in income. That's the difference. That's true, and that is one good point. I mean, if you are to, like we are doing right now, as a disclaimer, stereotype the typical ICP I, fan. I will stereotype the shit out of an who, ICP who knows? Who knows how much money they have, and maybe this might be a little overpriced. But then again, you know, they got vanilla ice, and it's not cheap to bring the Iceman in to do Ice Ice Baby for an hour and a half. How many times do you think he's going to play Ice Ice Baby? Twice. Actually, once when... <laughs> what's this... There's, oh, Trapped. I, I remember I heard a story about the band Trapped. I know it's kind of an obscure reference. They, a person I know went to a Trapped concert. They're the band that had uh, uh, the... How do you spell goes, Trapped? T-R-A-P-T. They're a new metal oh. band from late 2000s, or from late 90s, early 2000s. They had that song, uh, Back off, I'll take you on. Headstrong, I'll take, take on anyone. anyone. Yeah. They opened and closed their set with that song, which with is unheard of for a legitimate band. Oh, with the, with the song you just mentioned. Yeah. So that's just an offhanded story we want to bring up about the Iceman. But the thing is, I'd actually enjoy hearing Ice Ice Baby twice in a set. I'd probably actually... Well, I mean, what else is he going to play, though? I mean, the guy's set's going to be 20 minutes long. Yeah, is he going to play some hits off of the Cool As Ice soundtrack? Yes. Nope. <laughs> probably not. I guess, you know, everybody's entitled to their own thing. I've been to pro wrestling shows, and, you know, people there's, would make the argument that pro wrestling fans are the most ignorant fans in the face Yeah, of there's planet. not a huge stretch between Juggalos and, no. and really, really pro wrestling fans who take it really seriously. Absolutely not. Even though I think now that you can draw the distinction because the WWE is courting the 12 and under set. No. Which is kind of, I think that sinks even lower than the Juggalos because you're selling violence to young children. Yeah. 
Gathering of the Juggalos, though, somebody should probably drive a monster truck over the top of it, which would be appropriate because I'm pretty sure there's going to be a tractor pull there. There's probably going to be some kind of watermelon seed spinning contest. I don't get it. I don't get the ICP. It also kind of strikes me as a uh, long commercial, a four-day commercial for their upcoming film, Big Money Rustlers. Yeah, that's exactly what it's, it is. The whole is, thing is building up to the premiere of this movie they made. Exactly. But you know what? More power to the ICP. You know, more power to Shaggy Two Dope and whatever his... Uh, Violent J is the other Violent J. You know, they've got theirs. They grabbed their yeah, cash. Yeah, and no kidding. Doing it. You know? You know, and that's, I'd love to have their money. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd I'd straight up. I'd put retarded clown makeup on too if it if they're gonna pay me millions. So you know, go them. Good for you, insane clown posse. So that wraps it up for this week's episode of Apocalypse Now. Uh, what do we got going on next week, Dave? Uh, next week we're going to feature the return of our Man of the Week segment, the uh, John Ritter Memorial Threes Company news bit. And we're also going to be talking about something near and dear to both of our hearts since we're just a couple of uh, homers. The Portland Trailblazers' various off-season moves or lack thereof. So for Apocalypse Now, this is Aaron. This is Dave. And we'll see you guys next week. Have a good one. <laughs>